0: All right, church, open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 today, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, whether you have a physical Bible, Bible on your device, uh, whether you're in person or online, we're grateful you're all with us, but I want you to open your Bibles today, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. This is our final final message in the series on 2 Corinthians. And we've called this ambassadors. This word ambassadors or this idea of ambassadors comes from 2nd Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. You don't have to turn there right now unless you want to, but it's on the screen. And it's this we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. An ambassador is a representative. So it's somebody who has higher power that has entrusted you to be an ambassador, to be a representative, and and just to think about what this says about God, that God in all of his glory has chosen humanity, like saved human beings, saved through Christ, has chosen us to be ambassadors, meaning God trusts us to make an appeal to the world of who Jesus is. So what does it say about God, that God desires partnership that much, and what does it say about you? I try to spend so much of my ministry attempting to convince people that you have what it takes to be a representative of God because Jesus lives in you. And if you're here today or in this worship experience today and you aren't sure if Christ lives in you, we would love a chance to talk to you about what that means. In 2 Corinthians 5, 19 and 20, Paul talks about what it means to be an ambassador. Now, we've been in this series now for about 12 weeks, and in 2 Corinthians, most of it, it Paul is making a defense of his own ministry. His ministry is under attack. His authority is under attack. Paul's uh, confidence and competency has been shaken a little bit. And, and Paul is writing to them, both making an appeal that his ministry matters, but also reminding people of what the gospel is that he presented to them. So here's the deal. Please listen to this, all right? 2 Corinthians is 13 chapters long. In chapter 1 through 7, Paul makes an appeal about his ministry. In chapter 10 through 13, Paul makes an appeal about his ministry. In chapter 8 and 9, it's like a pause. So the first seven chapters, the last... 10 through 13, the last four chapters, Paul's making an appeal about his ministry, trying to recenter the church and the gospel. But in chapter 8 and 9, it's like he takes a time out. It's like, oh, hey, we need a couple of chapters to talk about money. Because anytime there's tension in a relationship or t- between two groups of people, talking about money makes it all better. Am I right? This is like Marriage Advice 101. All right? I'm married to a woman, Casey and I... I I I love the marriage. It's not a perfect marriage, but we have very few arguments, but I don't know how it would go if Casey and I were in an argument one day, and, and right in the middle of it, I was like, Casey, let's stop what we're arguing about. Let's talk about our finances, because our boys are really expensive. We need to cut back on a few things, and your Hallmark subscription every month is like, do we care about our kids going to college or not? All right, we got to save that four ninety nine a month. Like, how do you think it would really go? Like, so for Paul to like make this appeal about his ministry and then come back to want to talk about his ministry and the center of the gospel, and then he pauses for two chapters to talk about money. Now, if you're like me, when I hear church leaders talk about money and finances and generosity, there's suspicion. Now it's not that I get to be in many churches where I'm hearing other people preach, but if I'm listening to a podcast or to church leaders, there's suspicion when I hear church leaders talk about talk about money and finances. One, there's suspicion because sometimes the way church leaders talk about money and finances is we can, like, we have a way to make it sound desperate, and we can sometimes, with even if we don't mean it or not, it can come across like manipulative or or, or guilt-driven or like. There's also the suspicion that sometimes I can't stand when I hear church leaders who like present a health wealth gospel to people, as if to say, if you'll just give to God, God's going to give you the car you want and the house you want and the financial blessings and prosperity that you want, which is not what we read about Jesus, and it doesn't make for a better world. So I get that there's suspicion when it comes to talking about money. So I have two things I want to try to accomplish today. Number one is this. Now both of these are on the screen that I want you to embrace generosity as a spiritual practice essential for spiritual maturity. And I'm going to talk about this a little bit more later. And I hope to talk about this in a way that is inviting, that feels like partnership. And when it comes to generosity, I want you to think about generosity as a spiritual practice, just like you think about prayer as a spiritual practice. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus had a chance to talk about three spiritual disciplines. And he talks about giving and prayer and fasting. And Jesus just assumes that these things will be done. So if you're in the mindset right now of, I'll work on becoming a more generous person when I'm out of debt or when I, when I feel better about savings, uh, you would not do the same thing when it comes to prayer in your life or when it comes to Bible study practices in your life. So think about generosity as a spiritual practice. This is going to be one of my challenges today. The other is this, is I, wanna, I want you to see Paul's strategy when it comes to generosity, when it comes to money. And I need to paint a bigger picture for you of something that most of us who've been reading the Bible our entire lives, especially the New Testament, maybe we have never seen. When it comes to the ministry of Paul, there was this thing, and i put it in quotations, because this is like a big idea in Paul's life, but it was a collection. There was this massive collection that Paul had been commissioned by the Jerusalem leaders to go and take this collection up. Now, Paul had access to places around the world that a lot of the leaders in Jerusalem didn't have because Paul was an apostle. He was a missionary to the Gentiles. So Paul went further out than anyone else. But this, was a, it, this took strategy because they didn't have, they didn't have like emails they could send out. They didn't have social media strategies. Even if you send a letter, it may take a while for that letter to get there. So for most of us, who know anything about the New Testament or the Apostle Paul, you've probably thought about Paul as Paul the evangelist and Paul the church planner and Paul the equipper and Paul the discipler, but you probably haven't thought about Paul as a fundraiser. Paul is one who is leading this initiative, leading this collection. Let me show you a couple of places where this will pop up. In Galatians chapter 2 verse 10, and I'm just reading one verse so you can go back and read the rest of Galatians 2 if you want to, but Paul writes this. All they asked, talking about the leaders in Jerusalem, all they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along, which of course this was something like for them to take seriously in their daily life, but Paul had a much bigger project in my eye and he refers to this in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 verses 1 and 2 where Paul writes this. So now he's writing to the church in Corinth and he's reflecting on what he said to those to that church in Galatians. He writes this, now about the collection for the Lord's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do, that on the first day of every week each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income saving it up so that when I come no collections will have to be made. So Paul even even though a lot of times we have looked at that and have thought about the weekly commitment to giving, Paul's painting a much bigger picture for them, that there is this collection, kind of like what we do in a special contribution, that he's trying to take up. He's done this for the Galatian church. Now he writes to the Corinthians about the same thing. Now as Paul is serious about this collection, a few things. One, this took a couple of years for Paul to do. So this wasn't like a two-month project. This was a massive project. Something else, this doesn't seem to be like a a disaster relief. So it's not like there was a famine and now they're raising money for a famine. And and I really want you to catch this. Paul is going and he's making an appeal to Gentile churches to raise money and to send money to Jerusalem, which is primarily Jewish people. So for Paul, there's also this sense of unity. There's this this collaboration between different races and ethnicities. So, Paul is writing the Gentile churches to do something some of them had never done, was to raise money for the sake of God for people who were far away, and to trust that those leaders in Jerusalem would disperse the funds for the good of the world. As Christianity spread and more and more people were surrendering their lives to Jesus, commitment to Jesus often came with many sacrifices financial losses, the loss of relationships, and maybe the loss of jobs. And the church wanted to be ready to support people all over the world who were surrendering their lives to Christ all in his name. In Romans, Paul references this in chapter 15. He says this, Now, however, I am on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the Lord's people there from Macedonia and Achaia. were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it. And indeed, they owe it uh, to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them in their material blessings. So after I have completed this task and have made sure that they have received this contribution, I will go to Spain and visit you on the way. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the full measure of the blessings of Christ. Paul wasn't afraid to make a plea. Paul wasn't afraid to raise a bunch of money for the good of the kingdom of God. And before we unpack a little bit more of chapter 8 and 9, I want to give you three verses. It could just bless you in your life. If you need something to think about when it comes to generosity, let me give you three verses to think about. You can maybe mark, make a mark in your Bible. I also want to point out two words that I think will be helpful to you the next time you're reading 2 Corinthians 8 or 9 or the next time you're thinking about generosity. I want you to know this verse in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Here's what Paul says. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you might, through his poverty, might become rich. And Paul's not he's, not, he's not talking about financial blessings here, but what it means to be rich in God. I want you to think about 2 Corinthians 8, 13, and 14, that our desire is not that others might be relieved while you were hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need. So then in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. I want you to think in your own life that sometimes when you have reached out to help somebody in poverty, sometimes we were thinking that we have what they need, and in response, you receive something in return. Has this ever happened to you? And here's Paul who's trying to remind them of this. That sometimes we're giving, but then there's so much that people in poverty have to give to us to remind us of the riches of God. I want you to think of 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, that each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So in our lives, when it comes to generosity, there needs to be thinking and discerning and planning that takes place. I want you to know these two words. One is in Second Corinthians chapter 8, verse 2, and it's a word that in most of your Bibles, it's the word generosity. In chapter 8, verse 2, it's in the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. I want you just to see on the screen this word generosity. This is about singleness of heart, of one who has no mixed emotions, not divided in their priorities. So this is a word for people who are living in community that when we give, it's not just that we're giving out there to somebody hoping something good happens. Like there is this unifying, there's something about unity happens when we come together to, to pour our resources into some movement or to something that's happening in the world. In chapter eight, verse four, and nine, verse one, and you'll see this in a few places in these two chapters. Paul talks about sharing in this ministry, or in some of your versions, it may say sharing in this service. It's the same word, and it's about ministry for others. It is this outpouring to other people, so that so Paul doesn't want a mindset to be like I'm going to give to someone else, and then they go and do ministry. The mindset the Bible wants us to have is that when we give, there's partnership, and there is sharing. So when we give to Agape, or Hope Works, or Soma, or to other nonprofits, and not that we're just giving to them and hoping that they go do ministry, but that in our giving, there is this partnership between us and them. Today, in our 316 Offering Day, it's not just that we're giving money, that hopefully they'll do ministry in Zambia, or Panama, or Ukraine, or Greece, but that in doing this, there is a partnership between us and them. So let's take a step back just for a moment. In your life today... Do you ever have businesses or organizations who reach out asking for money? Maybe a better way to say it, is there ever a day in your life that you don't get an email or a letter or a phone call from somebody asking for money? It happens all the time. Let me just, pop, let me throw up a few images for you. There's service calls and since we have cell phones now, I don't know about you, I just, I rarely ever answer my phone if I don't notice the number. But I know back before that, before caller ID, like all these calls. Now, Casey, when she was a freshman in college, she had a job. She needed, As soon as she got to ACU, she got a job, and she worked at a service center where she had to make these calls to people to raise money for ACU. And the way they equipped her to do her job was every call she made, that person had to give her three no's before she was supposed to get off the phone. So she's calling them, and she's making a really big ask. And then if they say no, she's going to make a smaller ask. And then if they say no, she was taught to start crying. <laughs> and to lie and to come up with a story of, you know, parents dying and you need help in school. Or not. But there was a smaller ask. And then it was like the, the last one was hey, like, can you just do $25 a month? Something to help. Like if you've had these service costs. It's getting really challenging right now, this next image, just with tipping etiquette. Like my boys, uh, when they were sixth graders, they went to Winterfest for the first time, you know, youth rally here at church, and we, we gave them money. It was the first time we gave them money for a weekend and trusted them to hold that money and that it would take care of every lunch and dinner. And the moment that bus pulled away, we're like, the first stop at Lowe's or Pilot, that money is gone on all the snacks, right? But we have to sit down and talk to our boys. Here's when you tip and here's when you don't tip. If you order at the counter like Burger King or Five Guys, you don't have to tip. But when you're sitting down at a table and they take your order, here's when you need a tip. But today it's becoming more and more challenging for us, right? Because you may be at a restaurant or a coffee shop and all you order is something that they just have to pour in a cup and then that machine turns your way and asks, will you tip 15, 20, 25%? And you know, like sometimes it's probably going through your head because it's going through mine. If I say no, are they going to spit in my food or do something, right? Like, are they going to think I'm just this inconsiderate, mean-spirited person? And sometimes it's even worse at like Walgreens or CVS when you, all you do is go in and get a pack of gum and they ask, do you want to round up? Do you want to give five to $10? And if you don't, you just don't care about hungry children. Like, everywhere we go, they're asks. And I know, like, you're getting hit up all the time. There's special contributions and donations and sponsorships and year-end giving. And thank goodness in the church, we never ask for money. (laughs) Maybe we do, all right? Because in the church, we have a weekly contribution. In the spring, we have a 901 contribution, special contribution that supports local efforts. Today, every October, we have a 316 offering that supports global efforts. There's times throughout the year that we have food pantry needs. We have end of the year giving. Every March, we have a Panama fundraiser for mission efforts, I mean, our mission effort to Panama, in which some of you will spend $750 on a cake, all in the name of Jesus, right? So I know a lot of us, like we give to churches, we give to nonprofits, we give the special contributions, we give to those one-time things that come our way. And throughout the year, how can you ever say no when some little girl asks you to buy thin mints or peppermint patties, like peanut butter patties, like, you, like there's all these requests that come our way all the time. And sometimes it can be really tricky with global efforts. Because we live in Memphis, we're all around us, there's so many needs. Some of us talk about this, like there's so many needs all around us. And sometimes when it comes to global efforts, we may think, like, does our small amount of money that we give, does it make a difference? And sometimes with global efforts, like, it's hard to see or to feel what is happening in some of these places around the world. And then you could read books like Toxic Charity, that they make arguments of, hey, instead of you taking a mission trip to what some people will call a third world country or an under-resourced country, country, instead of that, why don't you send that $40,000 and hire a couple of painters or contractors who can do their own work so that you build up the community. But then you talk to people, even in this church, who have been a part of mission efforts, and you see how God has grown their heart and their mind and has opened up their eyes, and they will never be the same because how they've encountered God through some of these global efforts. And when it comes to giving and generosity, I know there's so many ways that what I'm doing right now, like how we teach and preach about it, sometimes it can feel manipulative. Sometimes it can feel inviting. Sometimes it can feel like partnership. So I want you to see this map real quick, and then I want to get to a little bit more in Second Corinthians 8 and 9 with you. I want you to see this map. And I know there are a few different cities. I just want you to notice up top there's Macedonia. So Macedonia in in the first century world, Macedonia is where you have Thessalonica. This is where Philippi and Berea. So these are some places both you read about in the book of Acts and Paul wrote letters to them. And then south of that you have Achaia. Now, in Achaia, this is where there's Corinth and there's Athens. So anytime Paul was on a trip by land going to Corinth or Athens, he's passing through Macedonia to get there. And when it comes to this big collection that Paul is taking up, he had done everything in Macedonia before he had done it in Achaia. Now, let's leave the map up there for a moment. And to help you see chapter 8 or 9, I'm gonna create a hypothetical scenario right now where I'm gonna pretend to be the fundraiser who's gonna live this out. So everything I'm about to say is not like, don't take this personal, this isn't directed to the Sycamore View Church. I just wanna help the Bible maybe uh, speak to you in a fresh way today, all right? So here's how we're gonna do it. Tennessee churches, It's so good to be with you today because I was just up in Kentucky. Now, for some of you who are geographically challenged, Kentucky is above Tennessee, all right? Now, for all you Tennessee churches, I was up in Kentucky, and I was making the same plea for global efforts that I'm making with you today. Because up in Kentucky, these are churches, these are poor churches, and we had kind of set a bar. There was a number we had asked for, and they blew it out of the water, and they gave out of their poverty. Up there in Kentucky, there are a lot of poor people and persecuted people. Just think about it. They live in Kentucky, all right? So they're they're in Kentucky, and these are some of the poorest people around, yet out of their poverty, they gave, and they, they, they blew us away. And we told them up in Kentucky that we were coming down here to Tennessee and that in Tennessee there are wealthier people and wealthy churches, churches with a lot of resources. So we told them how thankful we were for their gift. And then we also told them that because of your wealth, you're going to be able to do so much more. So when we go back up there to Kentucky to give a report, we would love to be able to tell them, that you exceeded our expectations too. So we know you're not gonna let us down, right? You're gonna open up those pockets and give a lot of money because we told Kentucky that you were some of the best people around, all right? How would you feel if somebody came and gave that speech? Now, let's open 2 Corinthians chapter eight, because I'm not gonna put it past Paul to use a little bit of manipulation. As he's twisting some arms for this collection. Chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. It goes like this. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches up there up north. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us, for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. Now, check this out in verse 7. But since you excel in everything, in faith, speech, knowledge, complete earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you also excel in the grace of giving. Right? Like, not that this is competition. But it kind of is. Like, we don't want them to outdo us. In 2 Corinthians 8, verses 8 through 15, listen to this. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich And here is my judgment about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Finish the work. So this collection has started happening. Now they need to put their money where their mouth is, right? So that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. As it is written, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. I want to skip to chapter 9, verses 3 through 5. Where basically, here's where Paul, in between, where Paul has said, I'm sending a few people to you. And these are the people who are coming, both to teach, but also to take up the collection. In verse 3, it says, But I'm sending the brothers in order that our boasting about you in this matter should not prove hollow, but that you may be ready as I said you would be. For if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to say anything about you, would be ashamed of having been so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to visit you in advance and finish the arrangements for the generous gift you had promised. And then it, would, then it will be ready as a generous gift, not as one grudgingly given. And I want you to see 6 through 15. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Because of the service by which you have proved yourself, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity and sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace of God, grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. So look, here's the deal, all right? In Corinth... There's a lot of disunity, a lot of disruption in the body. And Paul saw this collection as something that wouldn't just bless people outside the churches in Corinth, but something that would unite them in God. And isn't this what every act of generosity in the church is supposed to do? Like it's not just something we do alone. I mean, we're, we're in this together for the sake of God all over the world. So I'm going to do this quickly, all right? I'm going to give you eight principles about generosity. So I want you, uh, they're, they're going to come up one at a time. They're not going to be eight at the end, just one at a time. If one of these hits you, I want you to either write it down or take a picture real quick. But here are just eight, eight principles, and it builds off this commitment I made at the very beginning of this message that I want you to embrace generosity as a spiritual practice that is essential for spiritual maturity. Now, Next week, I'm going to uh, uh, start a new series, and then I'm going to go on sabbatical the rest of November. And next Sunday, I hope you'll make plans to be here. I want to talk a little bit more about just, I'm going to reflect on my first 15 years of ministry here, things I've seen God do, and then I'm going to kick off a series that uh, our ministers are going to uh, help deliver uh, while I'm going on sabbatical. But right now, I want to speak into this. As I said up front, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus laid out a few spiritual practices and assumed that they would just, like people would honor them. He assumed giving would be done, prayer would be done, fasting would be done. He wasn't making suggestions. He assumed that these are muscles that we would exercise. So especially for young people, don't think that I, I, you know, one day when I have some more resources, then I will develop a gift of generosity. Or if you have a ton of debt right now, you may be thinking, I just wanna to try to get out of debt and then try to develop a heart of generosity. It, it's not that easy and you wouldn't do that with any other spiritual practice. So commit to it now. Number one is this. I'm gonna go through these fairly quickly. God is not a hoarder. God is a liberal giver. And I mean liberal in the best sense of the word. Like the storehouses of heaven are wide open. God is not holding out for eternity where then God is gonna dispense his riches. Like God is dispensing so much of his goodness and heaven's goodness right now. Number two, Jesus takes our small insignificant resources and multiplies them for the good of the world. You may think that your weekly contribution or the little you have to give to a special contribution, you may think it doesn't go very far, but go read the Gospels and see what Jesus has to say when a woman, woman put in two small little coins or how Jesus is able to take just a few fish and some bread and feed the masses. Jesus can take something that feels so insignificant and can use it to bless the world. Number three, we do not give back to God because all we have is already God's in the first place. Uh, and this is some terminology that we've tried to change in the life of this church, that we don't talk about giving back to God. 100% of what we have, 100% of what you have is already God. So for you, the challenge is, how do we bring everything we have in our lives under the Lordship of Jesus Christ? And that when we give, it's not that it was ours and now we're giving it back to God, it's God's in the first place. Number four is this. There isn't a clear distinction between spiritual and physical. Like this is sometimes be challenging us. Sometimes, sometimes you'll hear people say, I, I don't want to give to the church because I don't want to give to just paying salaries or keeping lights on. I want to give to efforts throughout the world or in the city that matter. And I, Casey and I do the same thing. We give to Agape regularly, Soma regularly. We give to HopeWorks. Anytime you give to a nonprofit, guess what you're also doing? Paying salaries Keeping lights on. And when we think about what it means to be the church, Sycamore View has redeemed so much of this for me because even though I've been employed by a church my entire adult life, I've gone through those seasons, especially early on in my ministry, where I just, I was like, May, we shouldn't invest in brick and mortar. Sycamore View's redeemed this for me. To see a campus that is used as much as this campus is used for the glory of God, trying to create safe places for people of all ages. And to know the expectations of every minister, every employee that we hire at this church, an expectation that they are pressing into the heart of God and that they are trying to be bridge builders in our community, that we're trying to hire people who will champion the mission, vision, and core values of this church. The sixth one is this, or fifth one is this. Generosity has everything to do with money, not just how we spend our time. Sometimes you'll hear people say, well, I, I, I'm not going to give money, but I'm going I'm to give my time. In the Old Testament and New Testament, this was never an either or. Like throughout the entire Bible, you're never going to have anybody say, well, I'm not going to give money. I'm just going to give my time. When I first came to Memphis for two years, I tithed my time. So if I was working 40 to 50 hours a week, I wanted to tithe that. So I took four to five hours every week. Now, we're at a place in our lives where I could do this, where I was getting to know the city, pressing into the city. But it's not just about how you give time, as precious as that may be. Giving time, your presence somewhere, doesn't, uh, throughout the Bible, it doesn't give you the right not to give your money to something. The next one is this. I think a tithe, I, and this is just coming from me, I think it is a good standard to keep and or strive for. Like in the Old Testament, it was required. In the New Testament, you don't have this as a law, a command given by Jesus, but I don't think that the God of the entire Bible would expect anything less from people living in a time where the Spirit of God dwells inside of us than God would throughout the Old Testament. The average person in a church in the United States gives 2.7% of their net income. And if it's you, I would encourage you, maybe not make a change overnight, but I think 10%, I think it could be a really good standard to strive for. And if this means that from now you make a seven-year plan where every year you're going to increase that by 1%, what you give to the good of the kingdom of God, you will be better because of it. The seventh is this, limited resources in the hands of God multiplies for His glory. Just believe it. The small things we have to give, it matters in the kingdom. And last but not least, God doesn't care if we have things, but God does care if things have us. In a discipline of generosity, it prepares us to combat all of the ways the enemy is trying to get us with greed or coveting. Generosity is a big part of what it means to be a church family. It unites us. It keeps us on mission. And today as we go to the table, the bread and the cup, and everyone here is invited. Here in just a few moments, there are six tables. There'll be the bread and the cup. We have prayer leaders around this room to receive you for prayer. I know Casey and Shelley are two women receiving us for prayer. Ephraim is going to be up front, one of our shepherds. Brent Patterson is going to be in the back. If there's anything we can do for you, we're going to be around the room for you. But what we're going to leave on the screen for a few minutes is this, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. And then I have two bullet points. If you need any help today as you take the bread and the cup to reflect, just a, a prayer for you to offer before God, here it is. For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. So maybe just take a moment this morning to reflect what did Jesus go through to make you rich and how am I called by God to use my wealth and my resources for the sake of the world will you close your eyes and bow your heads for God this morning I know I speak on a few things that can be tricky and not just hard to communicate from a stage but hard to know how people are receiving it or hearing it from a crowd so my prayer this morning, is if I've said anything that doesn't honor who you are, may those words fall to the ground and be trampled by you and not be remembered at all. But if I have spoken words that are true to your character, your nature, your mission, your heart, may they sink deep into our hearts and bear great fruit. And God, for every single penny given, both to the weekly offering this week and to our special contribution, God, will you multiply it and advance your kingdom through it? It's in the name of Jesus we pray and the whole church said, amen.